0: Welcome everybody to another edition of The Endgame featuring the man himself, the great haircut of the West Coast, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi mate, how are you?
1: I'm doing fine mate, how are you today?
0: I'm doing very well, you're resplendent in your camo t-shirt, I can barely see you.
1: <laughs> That's because it goes with my black and white TV.
0: Yeah, right, right. We have, a, we have a guest joining us today that you and I have been looking forward to speaking to for quite some time. It's taken us ages to get this lined up, but finally uh, we have him joining us and that is Kyle Bass.
1: Yes, I, uh, I have a stack of questions for him, so I'm just itching to do this.
0: Well, well, why don't we give you a chance to fire him at him? Let's bring him in.
1: Grant, how are you?
0: Carl, man, this is so good to have a chance to touch you. you know, I don't know how much you know about this thing that Bill and I have been off in search of. We call this thing the end game. Just okay. um, really trying to figure out how we go from this to whatever's next. And okay. as the kind of as the journeys continued, and we've kind of picked at different threads, we kind of come back to central banks quite a lot because the threads always seem to lead that way. The inflation thing, which I know you've been talking about a fair bit recently, keeps coming up. China keeps coming up. So there's a bunch of things that I think would be perfect, really, in your wheelhouse to talk about. Okay. Um, so we just want to really, it's just we're just kicking around ideas about how the world transitions. From the the environment we're in now to something else, and does that necessitate a crash? Is it something smooth? Is it a transition? We you know we really don't know, and it's just it's just great to get a lot of thoughtful people's ideas on it.
1: Sure, sure. And I guess to try to put it in a kind of a, a question, I think all of us that consider ourselves sane look at what goes on in the marketplace today, both the stock market and, and other markets. And we all kind of think, believe that it's been warped by years and years of QE, you know, passive investing, and all of these things. And I, I when we say the end game, I, I try to ask myself what what's going to stop this? Because if the thought is correct that this is sort of unnatural, even though it's gone on for a decade and a half, or maybe almost two, right? What stops it? And so that's really the first loaded question I'd like to ask you: What stops the central banks from doing this basically forever? If you had to guess. Yeah. I,
2: I, for what it's worth, I don't, I don't think they ever stop. Right? I, I think that they've chosen to go down the path. And now that they're so far down the path, you know, Greenspan, even in his admissions, uh, will never admit that he did anything wrong. Um, he'll never admit that he just didn't see the uh, breakdown in credit quality of mortgage lenders and the fact that conforming mortgage lenders, Fannie and Freddie, on balance sheet were buying oodles of subprime loans. And so, you know, I, I just think they've gone down this path. And if they try to about face bill in any way, we all know what happens, right? Imagine if they just turned off the buying of securities
1: and and, and tapered all at once, where would the stock market go? Do you think that the fact that the market has become more of a savings for everyone now uh, or is perceived that way again, because of passive investing and uh, all the people that are hired now, their certain amount of their money goes in essentially in index funds, do you think that part of you know, say the Fed looks at the market as sort of like the average man's piggy bank and they, they feel even more strongly than they might have in the past about bailing things out? Um yes, I I, I know they do. I mean, every single Fed member has a
2: Bloomberg terminal. And the, the 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 running joke slash truth is every time they give a speech, every time they talk about anything at the Fed. They all go back to watch what the how the market reacts to their speech. So seriously? Oh, you didn't know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, um, no. So, they don't. They don't. They don't put that in Fed minutes, do they? No, <laughs> but uh, that that is a widely known truth in okay. Haiti. And so it's something where they clearly use the market as a barometer of their success. And so you know they're never looking to prick the bubble, and they're never looking to. Cause damage to anyone's savings or university endowments or pensions, right? They feel like they are the financial gods of the world and that they are smarter than everyone and that they see how the world's working. And yet, chain weighting allows them to lie about inflation. And if you just look to Germany's last 12 months, they don't chain weight in Germany. And the last 12 months of German inflation is now 11.8%. So, you know, you still have negative rates in Germany, and yet you've gotten 11.8% inflation number. So real rates, we believe
1: real rates are negative 12 right now. I'm with you on that. I don't have the, the numbers, and the data to back it up like you do on that score. But why do you think that the consensus appears to be that inflation is transitory and no one's particularly worried about it and rates are, say, negative 12 over there and some variation of that over here, is it because there hasn't been any inflation that's upset the markets in so long they've forgotten that it can happen? Or what do you think drives that? Well, I just think it's the reporting, Bill.
2: I think if you look at the CPI and PPI, or you look at you, you look at the numbers as reported by the US government, mm-hmm. and they never show inflation. And it's because, right. again, you, you look at the, the average price of a car has tripled in the last 30 years. Uh, it's over 300% higher. And yet the amount of auto-inflation in the calculation of the CPI is 5% over that 30-year period, right? So they chain-weight everything. You're never going to see real inflation numbers printed by the US government. It doesn't doesn't serve their purpose.
1: Let me follow up on that, because you've touched on something that I've thought about for a long time, and that is exactly the point you made. You don't have to look too hard to see the cheats, whether it's the chain-weighting, the substitution, the hedonics the oer what i kept asking myself is you don't have to be that smart to see that right and not everyone who operates in the market is not smart i don't understand why people don't look through that well i mean i guess we could say the same thing about the media at large today and the news at large today people are willing to look the other way for long periods of time on all kinds of facts but i I haven't understood why Smart, sophisticated investors need the government to tell them what the CPI is supposed to be when they all have checkbooks. They all write, yeah. you know, pay for things. I mean, when you go out to dinner these days, you know, your bank account drains oh, a lot faster God. than it did just
2: five or six yeah. years ago. It's, it's yeah, it's insane. I look at these bills and wonder if I'm getting them in pesos or dollars when they come <laughs> in. And, you know, and and it's and, it, and it's everything in life. Uh, everything in life has gone massively higher in price and. And again, if you look at if you look at the way the Fed calculates, even cell phone data is one of these things that they say uh, has been massively deflationary. The cost of data storage and the cost of data transfer has gone way down. But that doesn't actually offset your bank account because right. they put more and more data on the phones and the phones have gone up and up and up in price. An iPhone, and much does it cost today,
1: $1,100. You know, an iPhone 10 years ago was not $1,100. No, it's it's amazing the amount of bullshit they've pulled off under the name of hedonics. I completely agree with you about the inflation problem. What do you think it will take or might take to get psychology to start to change about that? Do we look to Germany first? Do we look to Japan first? I mean, they they've been the thought leaders in monetization. I, I mean, you must think about what's the catalyst that might change this. Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I have. I have a great anecdote
2: for you. I I had breakfast with Corona. A very private breakfast, just a few of us, and um, we talked extensively about you know uh, them achieving their inflation target. If you remember, they raised their inflation target from one to two. They never achieved one. They decided to raise it to two, I guess, for psychological reasons. And I asked rodasan I said, "You know, you say you're not monetizing your deficit and your debt, and yet." You own 125% of GDP of your bonds. You own one of every two JGBs that's ever been issued. And you guys own 80% of every single listed ETF in Japan. Through the look through, you're a top 10 holder in the top five companies in Japan. So on, on the equity side, and what do you guys call it? And he gave me this big guttural belly laugh. And he said, Kyle, we are only monetizing our debt when the market tells us we're monetizing the debt.
0: Yeah. That, but that's exactly it. That's exactly it, right? That's exactly where we are at that point. That's the point where you know who are you gonna believe? The numbers or your own lion eyes? That's basically where we're at.
2: That's where we are. But the title of this talk, right, as the end game, the interesting unintended consequences of all of their actions are, are really starting to boil and show. And I believe the geopolitical tensions that we're seeing in the Arab Spring, which, right, was the cost of food. Food, yeah. Right. Right. Uh, What we're seeing in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict today, what we're seeing in the Chinese-Indian conflict on their border, we all think that these are just certain belligerent actors acting, and they're acting for different reasons. I believe very, very interestingly that this asset price inflation and the cost of food, if you look at the UN uh, World Ag Index, uh, it's up like 45% eight months. I believe the cost of food, the cost of assets, housing in particular, has ripped. And what that does is it makes the poor even poorer, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It makes the middle class not able to reach up to their next home because their wages don't move anywhere near as fast as asset prices. And so look at what we're seeing. Today, we have the lowest birth rate of every developed nation in the world today. Guess why? Because people can't move out of their homes. No one's going to marry And live with their parents and have sex in their parents' house. It's not going to happen. They're not going to have babies in their parents' house. The birth rates are collapsing around the world Mm -hmm. and the price of assets are ripping. And so, an unintended consequence here is this is why these movements are springing up. This is why BLM is actually springing up. Mm -hmm. This is why the social tension in our country is so palpable, you can cut it with a knife. Mm -hmm. Uh, We all think it's Republicans versus Democrats. I actually think it's much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And it's the the gap between the haves and the have nots will keep widening as an unintended consequence of Fed action. And we'll get to a point where we have more kinetic conflict. And I think that's what eventually stops this large S.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Kyle, you talk about that Republican Democrat thing. I, I completely agree. Everyone thinks of this as a, as a left-right, kind of a, a horizontal schism. But the truth is, it's a vertical schism, right? It's the 1% at the top. And then the schisms happen as you go down the kind of wealth pyramid. But that kind of comes back to this inflation narrative and this idea of transitory because what we're starting to see now finally are wage increases. And we're starting to see some big companies put minimum wages up. And you know, bizarrely, I guess, in the age we live in, they're doing it not because there's an, an inordinate amount of pressure on them, but because they want to be seen to be good corporate citizens. And mm-hmm. so we're starting to get these wage increases. And they're not huge, but are the first ones we've seen for a long time. You know, That's very sticky, it's very tough to take wage increases away again. People try every now and again, but it it doesn't go well. But also the food price inflation you talked about as well, that doesn't go down anywhere near as fast as it goes up. Sometimes you get little kind of pullbacks in some of the raw commodity prices. So how does all that play into this transitory narrative? And at what point do you think the Fed or any of these central banks has to find some cute way of crying uncle about this?
2: Uh, look, for what it's worth, transitory is a is a mechanism that the Fed governors use to govern the psychology yep. uh, of the event. Right? Uh, this is not their true and pure prediction. Uh, when you get into an inflationary environment, I think we all know the three of us are actually old enough to have seen some inflation. Mm. Yes. Uh, most of the market participants have never really seen it. And let's just say runaway inflation. But I think that. Part of an inflationary narrative is that is when you lose control of thought and it Mm. becomes pro cyclical and you start reacting and doing things that cause more and more inflation. And so this concept of transitory is really a psychological arrow that they shoot out there to make everyone believe this is whatever they're seeing. It's just it's not going to happen very much. And then they then they can cherry pick because, look, we all know what happened in the lumber markets. There are plenty of pulpwood pulp and hardwood trees out there for lumber and paper and cardboard. We know what happened during the first surge when the virus emanated from China. The paper mills and lumber mills all shut down. And so home building kept going on because it was outside. The mills shut down, so they evaporated whatever inventory was there. And then basically, you know, the richest people in the world were people would pick up trucks full of two by fours. Mm-hmm. And lumber went up six, 700%. If you look at the price of lumber today, it is round trip completely because the mills are back open, right? right. So some of the inflation is, without a doubt, transitory. Yes. But they'll have to start raising wages at the lumber mills. So the price of lumber will resume its upward trend. It's just not going to go up 700% in five or eight months, right? So there are a few things that will be transitory. But like we're talking about food, iron ore. Energy. I think we've dramatically underspent in energy. And we are going to see, I think we're going to see $100 crude this year. We're in July of 2021. After seven years of malinvestment and the crowd that is virtue signaling that we just can flip a switch and go electric, I think they haven't done the math. And I don't think they realize that hydrocarbon demand is inelastic. And so I think we're going to see inflation that continues. And I don't think we're going to see rates. If you noticed when short rates started to bump up in the futures markets, we saw bear flattenings in the curve immediately, yep. right? So I don't think the front end can move up more than 100, 150 basis points maximum. And I don't think you'll ever see the 10-year above 2.5% again. And so I believe yeah, wait, this Wait, wait,
1: wait. So, so Kyle, I'd like to stop you on that point. Do you mean that if the market were to try to take rates higher than that, The Fed would just step in and basically do some form of yield curve control? Is that what you mean? Yeah, it would have to. Because if you you look back to Bernanke's famous
2: helicopter speech and just go go reread it fresh every now and then. okay, You'll see that what he says, he says, we have to avoid the zero lower bound at all costs. We can't get down there. Because if and when you get down there and people's expectations reset, you can never move from there. So when we used to lower rates down from, call it, Six or seven down to four or five, and then we bumped rates up 100, 150 basis points from five to six and a half. You know, as a percentage of where they just reset expectations to, it was 20, 25 percent. When you take rates to zero, and the ten years at one, and the ten year moves from one to two, it's a hundred percent move in interest. And so you can't have material movements from that zero lower bound. And Bernanke says the longer you're down there, the harder it is to ever leave
1: we've been there for, for essentially 10 years, Yeah, right, 12 years. Well, I think you were the first person, I think, that said, and I've subsequently stolen the phrase, um, you know, you can never leave ZERP, NERP. And it's quite clear. And the corollary to that is essentially the Fed is trapped. They, all, all the central banks are trapped. And having grown up in the markets in the late 70s and 80s, and it's, you guys have seen, people in the markets used to be quite smart and looked ahead at the problems. And I would have thought if it was obvious that the cent- central banks are trapped in these policies, there would be a price to pay for that. But it seems like people are instead giving them a standing ovation and said, yeah, they're trapped and we love it and nothing bad can happen. I like there's things that are so obvious and they're so obviously negative over time, but there's never a consequence.
2: Yeah, I I, I think that's true. And, you know, one of the one of the books that was shared among several of the Fed governors. I'm going to share my screen. Am I am I allowed to do that during this? this? Sure, yeah, sure. Uh, no one else will get to see it because we only we do can audio. Talk through it. Okay, um, but there's a there's <laughs> there's a really good book, um, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's a book by the name of Stuck by Oliver Jeffers. And when you when you turn the pages of this book, what happens is you see this kid who gets a kite stuck in a tree so he throws his shoe up there to try to get the kite stuck and then it gets stuck and then he throws a ball up there and it gets stuck and then he throws an airplane up there and it gets stuck and at the end of the book all the shit is stuck in the tree (laughs) and it is it is exactly where the fed is today and they know it but again there is no alternative i there there is no alternative path from here we're too far down this path for them to ever allow the burn to happen in the forest right right
0: So, Carl, let me ask you what you make of the mixed signals that the bond market is sending versus the inflation narrative. Because obviously everybody's now had to pick a side, inflation, deflation, and people are throwing around different time horizons and what have you. But it feels like that one thing everyone's had to try and pick a side. And so there's the usual spike in the ball every time either the CPI comes in hot or the bond market yields start falling. What do you make of that? Because this inflation story is strong and getting stronger And yet yields, to the point we've made earlier, are failing to respond to that. Do you think that is because people realize that there is no way they can go higher? Or is it the bond market is signaling that this is a head fake and and we are heading back into deflation?
2: That's a great question. Oh, so, so no. I think that what the market's telling us today is we've seen a major outbreak of the Delta variant. We've seen the UK about face. We've seen the US travel advisors say, don't go to the UK. And if you look at the most heavily vaccinated population in Europe, they're the ones experiencing the largest outbreaks of the Delta variant of the COVID. And so I believe that the world is all of a sudden head scratching, thinking, holy Jesus, are we headed back to shutdowns and travel restrictions? And we were on such a trajectory on the opening of economies. And now all of a sudden, you know, you have the teachers union, in California thinking, well, maybe we won't go back to school. Maybe we don't have to work again and we'll get paid again. I mean, when you pay people not to work, I think we all know how that works out. Uh, Grant, I think the fact that you see the Republicans saying that they'll stage a Democrat style walkout on this three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure bill where, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors and two and a half trillion plus of the three and a half trillion is what they're calling human infrastructure, which is just passive payment. And we've got to stop that. So I think the infrastructure bill itself is hitting a wall at the same time the Delta variant spiking and people are worried about things closing down again. And so I think the market was, while it was superheated, it just cooled off really quickly. I, I think this is a blip. I think we will continue to move up and to the right. And I do think we'll have a trillion and a half dollar bill go through. Just think about this. We just printed $5.7 trillion and uh, pushed it into our economy. What's the government's budget a year? Like $4 trillion yeah. annually, mm-hmm. entire government? We just pushed $5.7 trillion into an economy. There is 35% more broad money, M2, in our system today than there was 16 months ago. And that has never happened before in US history. So, you know, these moves down, thinking that things might be cooling off abruptly. And, you know, you look at the travel and leisure equities and you look at the economically sensitive equities and they just nosedive over the last month or so. And I think that's all related to this Indian
1: or Delta variant, making people scratch their heads. Do you think, speaking of COVID, obviously certain states led the way in terms of taking a different path than many of the states. And everyone likes to characterize it as a red and blue thing. And I'd rather not do that. I would rather say, hey, let's leave the politics out of this and say Florida and Texas and a few others took a different path, the same as Sweden did and Croatia did. I'm on the West Coast where they're afraid of their shadow out here, right? I mean, so I'm kind of curious, do you think that we'll have some states that try to close if this gets worse? Other states are certainly not going to. And I'm wondering if the ones that won't will sort of shame some of the ones who want to in such that it won't happen so that if a handful of states try it, it's not going to get any momentum and we won't go back down that path as a country. Do you have a feeling about that? Yeah, I I
2: think our country is finished with closing down. There may be cities like San Francisco, and Mm -hmm. you know, let's just say it's hard. It's hard not to bring the politics in here because these governments believe that they control the people, that they don't work for the people. And I think that there'll be some cities that try to shut down. If you notice, there's been this amazing migration of Mm -hmm. people and businesses, productive people and their businesses moving from high tax. You know, uh, let's say mismanaged jurisdictions of our country, the Northeast and and the West Coast, moving to places like Tennessee, Texas, and Florida that have been pro-business. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not that we're anti-science. Right, exactly. We're pro-business. And something people don't bring up often enough is I think that the psychological damage done by the lockdowns and the virus emanating from China, I think, are hard to measure today. And I think that. Both the economic deterioration, the psychological deterioration, and the depression that's resulted in uh, you know, over a year of, of locking down at home is going to be uh, measured for years to come. And uh the societal cost could be higher for closing down vis-a-vis allowing mm-hmm. the virus to move through. If you notice, even on the Delta variant, it's more infectious, but it's not more right. legal. It's not right. killing people. And so uh, you know, at some point in time we just have to motor through these things and and then we need to bring consequences to China. We, we all know how they acted here, uh, and, mm-hmm. it, and it wasn't as a responsible global actor whatsoever. And uh, these variants seem to be popping up in the very places where China has its worst enemies. And if you, and if you look also, at Bill and, and Grant, I mean, if you look at Southeast Asia and you look at just the reported statistics, including China, the COVID deaths for all of Southeast Asia and China don't exceed 32,000 today and there's 4 million global deaths. And so either they're the biggest liars on the planet, which we know is true, but I wouldn't, <laughs> say, I wouldn't say the rest of Southeast Asia lies. So I'm not a scientist, but I would posit that uh, it sure looks to me like there's a, a genetic predisposition for uh, the intensity of the, of the
1: virus in various ethnic populations. I think most anyone with an ounce of brains in their head and that is willing to examine the facts without a pre-existing political bias, realizes that this was a gain of function escape or release. We could debate that from the lab. But for consequences to accrue to China, doesn't the mainstream media have to be willing to call a spade a spade? And, and doesn't the administration in power, which happens to be democratic, have to get over the fact that that's what Trump said at one point? I mean, how does China get called to account on this if we're so busy fighting with ourselves uh, because of political correctness and the rest of this woke nonsense that we go after the culprit in this?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I have to give this administration some positive marks here. I follow everything that Secretary Blinken says. Uh, I
1: saw that thing that you
2: flagged after his sit down meeting. Yeah. I am very impressed with his steadfast resolve to call the spade the spade, especially as it relates to China's human rights violations, their genocide, and their crimes against humanity. You know, he said before Biden was elected that a Biden State Department would never trade human rights for a trade deal. And if you know, Trump never, ever uttered the words human rights. And right. in, he, in fact, praised people like Xi and yeah. Putin for their control over their people, which is, again, kind of a crazy thing. Uh, he did some great things and some terrible things. But- right. I know behind the scenes, I knew a lot of people in the Trump administration. I knew a lot of people in the Trump State Department. uh, And I knew a lot of people in the National Security Council. I frequently interfaced with a number of them. They knew that their enemy was Steve Mnuchin. And Steve Mnuchin was part of the Wall Street crowd that couldn't wait to get another underwriting fee from a Chinese entity. And so every time Trump even threatened to bring up human rights in his cabinet meetings, Mnuchin would say, if you do that, The Chinese will immediately walk away. They will decouple. The market will crash and you'll never get reelected. Mnuchin had to have said that to Trump a hundred times. So Ah. if you notice, Trump never brought it up. Uh, And and Pompeo only officially designated the Chinese as genocidal and committing crimes against humanity after Trump had left the White House for good. He was on the airplane. It was the last day of Pompeo's administration when he put out this communique that Trump probably didn't authorize. But the good news is there was continuity. Pompeo said it and Blinken stood by. It. And so, you know, the answer is yes. Biden has ordered a review of the origins of COVID. And I'm going to tell you, I think they're going to come with the truth. Well, that would be great.
1: Good place to start.
0: Kyle, well, let me ask you, because once again, we kind of have the same dynamics at play as we do the inflation story here in that, again, there's a story here that you have been talking about for a long time and a number of people have been trying to get out into the open and tell a story that the mainstream media doesn't seem to want to tell. And as you go through the last couple of years, even you go back sort of five years, it's amazing how many so-called conspiracy theories have become, right? Now, they're not reality that seems to get covered much by the mainstream media, but more and more of the things that mainstream media managed to label conspiracy theories turned out to be valid. So what does it take for that narrative to crumble, for people to question the stories they're being told in an effective way that leads to policy change?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, Bill's earlier question about does the mainstream media have to pick up on this and run with it? The answer is yes. The good news is is you've seen some of them do it. The problem is, you know, look, you have places like Bloomberg where they're number one growth market's in China. So basically everything that they print has to be agreeable with, with Xi Jinping. When Bloomberg rolled their their whole uh, series on the Boji Lai scandal, as you know, they were turned off. <laughs> Bloomberg was shut out of China for a long time. And so they had to come back on their knees, groveling to China to allow them to be open. So you can see in the media where there are Chinese ads in a lot of these papers that they rely on China for their livelihood. So the mainstream media needs to be decoupled from China. But I actually think, I don't know, did you guys see when Jon Stewart went on Stephen Colbert and talked about Wuhan? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was important because a lot of the left love Stephen Colbert and they love Jon Stewart. And Jon Stewart was like, guys, there's an outbreak of chocolatey goodness in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Well, (laughs) I have no idea how that (laughs) You know, when you say things that are so blatantly obvious that Mm -hmm. the one place where they're studying gain-of-function coronavirus research for their bioweapons lab, happens to be where the disease emanated from. How can you not think that that
1: is the mainstream odds-on problem that probably happened? I thought that was a great clip that he did, by the way. But my question was, what took him so long? <laughs> <laughs> well, You know, uh, John Stewart was kind of off the air and probably
2: frustratingly watching all the same stupid oh, shit be, that we uh, watched. Uh, okay, because okay. You saw when he was there, he was like, all right, we've got to talk about this. It came from the lab in China. It isn't that hard to see, you idiots, right? This is not a Republican thing to say. It's not a Democrat thing to say. This is a simple, obvious thing to say. They didn't let us in there for a year. They cleaned the crime scene for a year. And then they let a Potemkin village of WHO members in for a guided tour of their Potemkin village and let them leave. They have never let us in and they won't ever let us in. And we know what really happened. It's simple.
0: Carl, let me ask you about your experience through all this because you know, I've watched you kind of grow into this role as a leader of the financial community in talking about this stuff. And you, you know, I watch you take a lot of flack from people, you get a lot of response from people. And I'm fortunate enough to know you as a very, very thoughtful, genuine, honest guy, right? I, I, you know, I'm lucky to know yeah, you. I, I so, appreciate so, when I no, but, it, but it's true, right? You and I spent time together and we've away from markets and, and, I've, and I've been around you. I know what kind of man you are. So when I read the stuff that you write, I know where it comes from, right? And 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 then I watch all the stuff that gets hurled at you. So just talk me through your experience because, look, lesser men would have gone, oh, you know what, I don't need this. Mm-hmm. Just walk me through that experience and tell me what it's been like and, and the kind of the, the struggles you've had with it and also the kind of reaffirming things that have happened because there must have been plenty of those too.
2: Yeah, it's you know what? It's forced me to become even better, a better researcher, a better reader and someone that tries to understand the geopolitics. You know, I don't have a degree from Georgetown in a in global foreign relations. Right. I don't I don't think any of us do. But but when you start understanding the manner in which these governments operate and act and then you study their history and you study their origins and you study their texts and everything that they're reading and you start reading Unrestricted Warfare, and you start rereading the 2025 speech, it's so obvious to see that China itself is in a quest for global primacy, and it's that simple. And they will steal, kill, maim, commit genocide. Uh, They'll do anything they have to do to get there. And every step they take along the way is simply a stepping stone, regardless of its consequences to whoever they're stepping on. And they're not a responsible global actor. They're a belligerent global actor. And so when I read the wolf warriors and, you know, look, they have a, they have a propaganda department that our intelligence business thinks they spend 10 to $20 billion a year on propaganda. Wow. Guess what? We don't have a propaganda department, right? We have guys like Bill Fleckenstein and Grant Williams and Kyle Bass and we we just have these wall street guys that like to talk every now and then and then we have mainstream media who is somehow and in many ways some of the media organizations are bought by the chinese they've actually bought hollywood right yep. you guys know that top gun 2 is about to come out and ten cent pictures funded it and maverick's bomber jacket won't have two flags on it as part of the deal they had to remove the taiwanese flag and the japanese flag from the bomber jacket So how many movies have we seen in Hollywood where there's a Chinese villain? None. And how many movies did you see during the Cold War that had Russian villains? It was all. All. And they were awesome. Right? So China's propaganda and China's deeply thought through way of coercing media here and controlling Western thought is something that we really have to fight back on. So Grant, it goes back to your question. You know, I really don't care what anyone thinks about me anymore. And when I say something, I, I mean it. And I don't have any particular axe to grind other than bringing the truth out. And the truth is all that matters to me.
0: But it's, it's still a, it's a fine line to walk because you have to avoid that feeling of, oh, it's Kyle talking about China again. You know, Wake me up when he comes back to talking about markets. You know what I mean? It's a fine line to walk. And, and I watch you straddle it all the time, right? And, and it's kind of incredible to watch. But how do you huh. navigate that particular razor's edge?
2: Well, I mean, everyone on Wall Street, I think, everyone's looking to make money. Bill and I have historically been known every now and then as, as short sellers and maybe people that point frauds out to the market. And maybe that it's that dialectic that drives us every day. But I think that on Wall Street, the entire sell side wants to open more offices in China at the same exact time concurrently with the U.S. State Department saying, The regime commits crimes against humanity and and genocide. I mean, why are Chinese government bonds even legal for a U.S. person to own? I have no idea. There's like the schism is so easy to see. And yet I wake up every day and think, well, why do they allow, you know, we have now what, 58 or so odd companies on the Commerce Department's blacklist for investment that have anything to do with Chinese military civil fusion or their or surveillance equipment or anything for Xinjiang. But we still pump hundreds of billions of dollars into the Chinese bond market and government bond market. And we're funding the regime. When you just think about what we're doing, if you buy a, a Chinese government bond, you are giving the government money to commit genocide. And yet, it's not outlawed here. I mean, there's some basic things that we should just be doing, and that's going to require leadership from the administration. And we're going to have to realize that the consequences, so what? If we lose 2% of GDP because we decouple, it doesn't matter, right? They steal
1: 2.5% of GDP from us every year, and they earn a return on it. Well, if the administration were to lead on that, the mainstream media would pick it up, and then yeah. it would become then it would become an issue. I mean,
2: well, it's it's, almost that strange. But it's so logical, right? It's like, okay, well, wait. wait. It, here's here's the logic trail. We've already designated them officially as a genocidal regime committing crimes against humanity. So therefore, next, should we, A, have US citizens, institutions, and endowments by Chinese government bonds to fund the genocide? Or we should, B, should we outlaw it until they change, right? I mean, these are like easy you know, flow diagrams to get to the end. For some reason, we're not going down those
1: logical pathways. Well, to be candid, we've talked about a lot of obvious, logical things that should be obvious for people to see and do something about that just kind of gets glossed over. I mean, I think almost every topic we've covered is pretty obvious, yet yeah. a lot of the things we're talking about, the view you're espousing or we're sharing is sort of in the minority still. Yeah, it's crazy. But, you know, I think the the end game is
2: how do we all invest our families savings, uh, the savings of others, if we're a fiduciary, what do we do to avoid negative 12% real rates of return, right? And I just think the answer is in productive hard assets, right? It's in, you know, in my view, I think you need to get in front of population movements that are nonlinear in a country that has a solid rule of law and, and uh, has a hegemonic currency. And, uh, you know, so I don't think you should change currencies per se. I think you should just try to stay ahead of that negative 12 uh, anywhere in the US where you think you can invest in human innovation, where you can invest in hard assets and productive real estate and things that you can really uh, stay ahead of this with. And I, I think that
1: is the end game. So protecting yourself from the inflationary pressures that are surely coming that are actually here is the most important lens with which to view in investments for over the likely you know, next group of years.
2: Even the millennials and Gen Zers, um, who had never seen inflation before, they are an incredibly smart group of people, and I love many of the ones that I've met and worked with. But they go to a place that's logical for them, right? Private crypto right. Uh, that is, you know, decentralized and it's its own currency, and there are no central banks printing it. This and that, but in the end, private crypto is is kind of it's anti matter to both a democratic government and an autocratic government. And so anti-matter to all the governments. I don't know where it's going to go over time, but I'd be willing to bet that we're not going to see trillions of dollars in global cap of private crypto for long.
0: Yeah. Based on that idea of trying to stay ahead of those negative real rates, what effect do you think passive has had on this? Because in order to do that, what you suggest and try and stay away from, uh, try and get ahead of those real rates, you, you, you almost have to step away from the S&P 500 index fund that you're just going to put money into, and you have to go back to doing what we had to do years ago, which is kind of think things through and allocate capital to specific industries, specific companies even, which is the antithesis of the way the investment world has gone in the last kind of seven or eight years.
2: Yeah. And I think we all knew at some point in time, index investing was going to have a somewhat of a comeuppance you know, I don't believe you have to avoid stocks or equities in this environment. I think if you look back towards prior inflationary environments, stocks keep up with about 80% of the inflation. They're, They're not perfect, but they've done well because in theory, they're productive assets and they have positive earnings and they're trying to stay out of the inflation themselves. I just think there are better ways to do it. If you accept my views as givens, which is a giant leap of faith if you don't believe rates are going to move up more than 100, 200 basis points, then the right answer is to actually lever yourself into these productive assets with mm-hmm. long-term fixed rate debt, right? And that's what I'm doing with my family's capital. That comes with some level of risk, but I'm also not levering to where I can't just pay off the leverage, yeah. right? I'm not taking you know, extremely risky levels of leverage, but I think if we're gonna stay ahead of these things, that adding 40 50% leverage to an asset that's productive, that's moving up in price because of the money being thrown into the system, and the price levels are moving, there are certain things you can buy that will stay ahead of that. And the more you lever it, the more ahead of it you'll be if you have fixed rate leverage. Well, to the
1: extent that your view is correct, that they're just not going to let rice rise because they can't, then that would probably eliminate a lot of the underperformance for stocks in general in inflationary periods. I remember in the early 80s, maybe it's the mid 80s, Steve Luthold wrote a book called uh, The Myth of Inflation Investing" or something like that. And it went through periods of when stocks would and wouldn't outperform inflation. And the key characteristics of it not doing so was when if the bond market goes into revolt, then obviously multiples compress. And then you got to own the exact right businesses, but yep. it seems to me if rates are going to be held down then stocks in general even though they're not an optimal choice have a chance to do you know pretty well i think i think i think you're right so there's another reason besides all the other ones that make it hard for the market to ever clear in ways that we would have expected it to in you know the prior 20
2: or 30 years yeah and and also you think about the government too uh, you know back when volcker was around you know, we deficit spent going into World War II, just like everybody did. And typically to the victor go the spoils, and to the loser goes defeat and default, which we've seen happen several times with both Japan and Germany. But I think that we had our highest debt to GDP number in 1946, right after the war, about 106% of GDP. And we paid that down all the way to about 36, 35, 36% of GDP down in, in to call it 1972 ish. And then we had a bout of inflation caused by some embargoes in '79, and Volcker showed up and again snuffed it out, you know, by raising rates to 17, 18 percent. We could afford it for a short period of time. Then there is a zero percent chance of the financial leverage, the leverage of the banks, and our sovereign leverage, given the GFC and now the global virus crisis. I think uh, there's just no way we can move. If we ever move the discount rate to 4%, it will detonate everything
1: that we have. All roads lead to inflation now. Yeah. I mean, productivity aside. And what's interesting is you brought up the point about the iPhones a while ago. And even the premier technological doodad of this last couple generations, i.e. the cell phones, they go up in price. Yeah. You know,
2: so they have more and more data on them. But the, the gross price coming out of your wallet does nothing but go higher.
1: Right, right. So um, it, it seems to me that I think a lot of people, when they talk about inflation, again, you know, half the world, I think, was born post-1980. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole lot of people that haven't seen it. And you made a good point about there's a whole contingent of younger folks that have gone into crypto because they they seem to understand the predicament the central banks have created but the reluctance of folks to believe in any sort of an inflationary outcome to me is, is rather staggering when it seems so, I mean, it seems to me that this is one of the most obvious things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I mean, I thought the 99 stock bubble was pretty obvious and the, and the housing bubble was pretty obvious. And, you know, I know you cashed in on both of those. And sometimes things come along that are so stinking obvious you think, how can this even be debatable? And then of course it has to go on long enough to make those of us who might've spoken up about it look like idiots and then finally, it matters. Uh, I just, I, the, the the fact that we're going to have more inflation in our lives, whether they count it or not, seems to be one of the biggest slam dunks I've ever seen. And yet, here we are talking about most people believe in transitory. Yeah, yeah, I, that, that's
2: beautifully said, Bill, I, I think. Again, controlling the psychology of whether we have inflation or not is actually the Fed's job, right. uh, because the insidious nature of it is, again, we're going to see You know, much more expensive gasoline and much more expensive food. And if you're poor, or even if you're lower middle class, you don't have any disposable income. And food and gasoline are everything to you. Right. And so the poor are just going to get a lot poorer. And that's the horrible consequence of of kind of what we're going through today. And I think to your point, it is not going to stop for the next 10, 15 years. So I think what we all have to expect is higher asset prices, more inflation more social discord, mm-hmm. and, and again, more more tearing of the social fabric of not only our country, of the world, which means inevitably
1: that we're going to see more kinetic conflict. I think that a lot of people have confused the fact that when they talk about inflation, that while the rate of inflation may not, we, we may have a burst, and let's say by the official statistic, it runs at four or five or higher. If it only then drops down to three, that's still the compounding on top of what we had before. And it, you know, we don't see any of these things discussed yet because people don't believe in it, but you mentioned the word psychology. And I've always thought when it comes to this sort of topic, that's the key variable when psychology starts to change, it's, it's impossible to get it back once it shifts. And the, the, one of the pernicious consequences, as you noted is of these, these fed policies as we've hollowed out the middle class. And that's, created the social environment we have now. I remember in the past trying to explain to people, look, we get into a long talk about why was I critical of the Fed and all that. And I'd get down the path and say, you know, you hollow out the middle class and you have social conflict and that leads to wars. And people would look at me like I had three heads. And so again, I keep coming back to, it would seem that sometime in the next, pick a number, six, nine months, the concern about inflation would have to start to get into the mainstream market participants, wouldn't you think? I mean, I know we never know about timing until it happens, but you have any kind of feel for that or guess about it? Yeah. I mean,
2: I think this most recent bout of Delta variant, uh, you know, worried some people about growth. I think we're going to just power through this and Mm -hmm. realize that the death rates aren't going to move, even though the infection rates are there. Uh, I think everything's going to be fine. And then- We'll get to a true reopening, and I see. You know, I'm sure you've been around some of these airports recently. So, just this last weekend, I was in San Antonio, Texas, and an event for some somewhere I sit on the board of, and the hotel I was in had a thousand rooms sold. I'd never seen more people in a hotel, and I left the hotel to go get breakfast because the hotel breakfast line was down a hallway. It had to been an hour and a half long. My son and I stopped at a Denny's. We stopped at another breakfast place. We were just looking at breakfast places. Hour and a half wait, hour and 45 minutes, two hour wait, two hour wait. You're thinking, what's going on in here? So people are just starting to go out and open up and eat. The airport was jammed. So when I think about what global hydrocarbon demand was pre-COVID, we were well over 100 million barrels a day in demand. And I think there's pent up leisure travel demand and there's pent up business travel demand. When we get a a true reopening, I think global hydrocarbon demand will go 105 million barrels a day. And we've malinvested or underinvested or not invested for the last seven years in any kind of conventional hydrocarbon production. So just like oil went below zero because there was an abundance of supply all at one moment and there's nowhere to put it, there's going to be this enormous demand that's, again, inelastic as far as price is concerned. We could immediately see $100, 120 $140 oil on the front end of the curve, and that's going to freak people out too. So I think those kinds of things, so when you say what happens six to nine months, we're going to see it, I think it's sometime in the next year we're going to see a full reopening and um, consequences people aren't ready for.
0: I just want to switch gears a bit, because I'm going back to something Bill said when he called the BOJ a thought leader in, in this monetary policy experiment, which uh, you need to trademark that, Bill. But um, I want to go back to your rational investor paradox, which was, I guess, maybe 2009, 10, I guess it was. And mm-hmm. anyone listening to this that, that isn't familiar with it, you should Google it and read it. it. It's I've told you this before, but it's still one of the best thought out and laid out investment theses that I've ever read. There, there were no holes in it. it. It just it worked beautifully. And so I, I'd love to understand what that experience taught you and how you've kind of adjusted the way you've had to think about things, given the power and the influence that these central banks have. Yeah.
2: Well, so I agree with you on that Japanese rates never moved. But we raised a vehicle around that thought, as you know. Yeah. We had the Japan Macro Opportunities Fund. And I thought about that paradox you know we all whether it was me or bill or Paul or jones or you at some point in time we the rational investor says rates are going to take off and it's going to detonate japan but either that's going to happen or they're going to implode under the weight of their own debt right it's going to go one way or the other but it's going to be a supernova or a black hole right one of those things are going to happen and in in our view the fact that abinomics came about was their desire to get to 2% inflation. And they dialed up their central bank expansion faster than that of any of the other global central banks at the time, right? They were going for the gold while everybody else was just was expanding a, a little bit. It's interesting. So Grant, at that time, I actually met with Shirakawa. And fun fact, he'd only meet with me in my hotel room. He didn't want to be seen with me anywhere. <laughs> um And um, you you probably know that I think it's the Mandarin Oriental overlooks the Bank of Japan, Uh, the old Bank of Japan. The the Bank of Japan is actually shaped in the shape of a yen from above, which is pretty cool. I think that uh, when Shirakawa said to me, he said, QE, central bank balance sheet expansion, only works if you're acting at a different rate than the rest of the other central banks. He says it never works if everybody is uh, printing the same amount, if you're trying to achieve right. an, a, an outcome uh, store, yeah. in, in your own in your own country. So they set it 2%. So we took what we did when I developed that theory and, and raised that capital around that fund is we put two thirds of the money short the yen because we knew that to generate 2% inflation, they had to get the yen to go from 80 to 120. And uh, we took one third of the money and we bought trillions of dollars of, uh, of uh, interest rate swaptions, uh, thinking that it was going to go one way or the other. So we lost a third of the money uh, and we quadrupled two, two yeah. thirds of the money. Yeah, And so that fund was actually very successful. It was one of the most successful financial outcomes I've ever had. However, <laughs> however, I'm known for the thesis being wrong and having the widowmaker, right. which is it's actually fine. It's fine. But I think that what it teaches you is is a valuable lesson for today that mm. all these people that were piling into sorting the long bond, you knew they were going to get carried out. I didn't mm-hmm. know when. But you know, a move from one seven to one one, as fast as it as as it went, I think carried out anyone. You that, mean the that, one that just the one that just happened to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Because we were printing, you know, the world was printing big inflation numbers. The US was even printing larger chain weighted numbers, which to its chagrin. Um, and so everybody was shorting the 10 year and, you know, a, and it just collapsed. So betting against the central bank, especially on rates, yeah. if they have the ability to expand their balance sheet, is an exercise in futility.
1: So I, I can't not ask you this question. <laughs> there you go, Bill. <laughs> You're exactly. teed up. <laughs> <laughs> how about I waited this long?
0: You did. I'm impressed. So so one what, what of
1: the things I used to think about when I was trying to figure out how this would end yeah. And I've been thinking about it for a lot of years, unfortunately. I used to ask myself, what happens if the BOJ goes to the MOF and says, you know what? We're going to just tear up the paper, in essence. You give us a, a like amount at like one basis point for 200 years or a perp or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, OK, we're done. We won and we walked away. I used to ask myself. How would various markets react when they de facto said what they've done? And um I'd like to know if, if what you think about that. But what I've learned since I used to think about that all the time is Not to think they about really it. have one, they don't have to tear it up. They can just sit like they have, they've won. And I expect now, when I say they're a thought leader, I was tongue-in-cheek, of course, about they're a thought leader in monetization and monetary debasement to some extent. And I don't see why any central bank will ever again try to get rid of one bond off the balance sheet. So I, that's a couple of questions. But if you wouldn't mind going there, I'd appreciate yeah, it. But, so
2: I think if you, if you just so I agree with everything you just said. I think that if you just look at how they negatively amortize these bonds, i.e., now that they own more than half, their interest expense goes down every year because they're negative amortizing these bonds, right? And so the interest expense line item to the government uh, continues to fall like a stone. They have negam going on. And um, to your point, they're never going to do something so overt like you're talking about, uh, where they just do a jubilee and, and kind of uh, tear up half the paper or something, right? Uh, because that would make people really scratch their heads and say, well, huh, you know, maybe maybe the yen's not worth where the yen is today. Maybe I'd rather own one where they don't tear up the paper. I believe, I believe if they're ever going to do that, they're all going to have to do it together. And they're all going to no. have to do it as an exact amount of host of country GDP. And you know, so if, like that, a, if those trees all fell in the woods at the same time, I'm not sure anybody would hear it. But I, I don't so think- So like,
1: do like a plaza accord for debt forgiveness. Yeah. We're all going to do it. Yeah. Right.
2: All going to do at the same time. But I, I don't think we're going to do it. I think your scenario is much more likely. They will just keep doing what they do. It doesn't matter. Obviously, the market yeah. don't think it matters. And, and we've all bought into this psychologically. And so it's just going to keep going the way it's going. And and you know, you and I want to see quote what quote the end means. Uh, and I think I think that there isn't an end, right? There's just uh, the the direction, and the direction is the direction they're headed in. And and what what will a major consequence be? It'll be another Arab Spring, right? It'll be another. I mean, food prices are China's worst nightmare. So maybe we'll see regime change if you get enough discord in some of these autocratic governments like you're seeing in Cuba you know this cuban the cubans if you if you go watch the tv and you listen very carefully what they're saying in many cases they're saying they're being starved to death by their government so i again a rise in price
1: affects the world in many different ways but it creates it creates a lot of friction and kinetic conflict the inflation is the inevitable consequence of the monetary policies and mismanagement And and now we're starting to see it. I mean, that's where we are. Exactly correct.
0: Fantastic. Carl, look, we've covered an awful lot of ground in this conversation. I really thank you for the time. Actually, there's one more thing I can, if I want to ask you before we go. I I tagged you in a tweet I put out the other day. I saw a a trailer for a a documentary about the struggles in Hong Kong over this last couple of years that was made by the protesters. It's all kind of shot on iPhones and, you know, it's really quite confrontational looking at this stuff, particularly as someone who's lived in Hong Kong, uh, you know, ha- has a great affinity for, for Hong Kong. W- what's your thoughts on the future for Hong Kong? Because it, sadly, it feels to me as though it's gone now.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's clear that it's gone. You have every pro-democracy legislator has been arrested and thrown in jail. Jimmy Lai has been, had his assets frozen, his newspaper turned off. There is no more freedom of the press. Hell, the, the Epoch News woman was attacked by men that jumped out of a black Mercedes with baseball bats because she was critical of Xi Jinping. I mean, there's no freedom of the press. There's no basic human rights. There's no freedom of speech. There is no legislative democracy anymore. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's gone. And Mm -hmm. China did away with it in about 14 months. And again, this will sound hyper conspiratorial, but the protests were at their worst when this magic virus showed up and shut Hong Kong off. And then China moved in and shut it down. And then the Delta variant happened to come out in India, where not exactly one of the greatest friends of China either, right? Mm-hmm. When the world started to get their arms it, You know, I tend to believe that everything is being orchestrated by the evils of the Chinese government in Hong Kong and itself. It goes to show you how quickly a democracy uh, mm. can fail and fall. And um, what that means is China will go take Taiwan. They will do it. They will do it one day in the future. Is it in 2021 or 2022 or will they wait? I think they really want to have the Olympics next year and I think we should really not go. And I think post the Olympics, all bets are off.
0: Interesting, interesting. Well, look, Carl, uh, again, uh, thank you so much for this time. It's been, as it always is, it's been thought-provoking and, and really enjoyable. So my thanks to you for, for giving up this hour of your day to, to talk to Bill and I. It
2: was, it was my pleasure, Bill. It was a pleasure talking with you and Grant. A pleasure seeing you.
0: All right, Kyle. We'll see you soon, hopefully, in a, in a crowded airport somewhere.
1: It was great. Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you, guys.
0: All right. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Well, there you go, Bill.
1: I can't believe we covered all of that in an hour. We
0: know, We jammed, we jammed that. I just looked a little at, little over at an the hour. time.
1: Yeah. I thought it must have been
0: two hours. Yeah, a little over an hour. We did, we did pretty good there. I, I, I know. I know. Kyle's a busy guy, but that was—it's fascinating. It's—it's you know, it's so interesting to me because, uh, as I said in there, you know, Kyle, he, he's just such a thoughtful guy right and and th- there are all kinds of um stereotypical caricatures painted of Kyle but he's such a thoughtful guy and and a decent guy and he, he 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 takes this stuff seriously and you know kudos to him for wading into these debates that he believes strongly about the way he does because man I couldn't I I, I couldn't fight those fights on all fronts Well, it,
1: it, like you have to get to the point like he said he doesn't care what people think yeah. you, you have to say I don't care if they try to cancel me Cause the people are going to try to cancel me. I don't care about anyway, because yes. they're obviously knuckleheads to begin with, if they would do that to shut off conversation on the topic. I think one of the anecdotes that he shared that illuminate your point about how, how thoughtful and smart he is, is I didn't know that, that fund that he'd set up did as well as it did. I thought I knew that they'd made money and it hadn't been as bad as anyone who wanted to say, detract from him would have said, but To think about having a structure where you go in and the thing that you're really trying to bet the biggest liable to happen doesn't, but because you're thoughtful enough to say, well, it's going to be this or this. And we really think this one, but we're going to have the other one in case the other one happens and you wind up, you know, making several, what do you say? Four times the money uh, or some number like that, um, that's why you need to know about whether or not somebody's thoughtful. Well,
0: but, but and that's I, I actually I think I I, I phrased the question wrongly I, when I was talking about how it didn't happen. You know, the chaotic outcome that, right. that the natural evolution of this the situation was going to come to didn't happen. But yes, Carl did make an awful lot of money out of that. And you, and you're right. That's that's the true art of this. Right, is being able to come up with a thesis and figure out how to make money out of it, even if it doesn't play out exactly as you're because these things it's never play out exactly as you Very,
1: I mean, no, but it's very hard to do yeah. that particular trade that he just discussed, yeah. you know, to position right and all that. So um, that's a, <laughs> just isn't that easy. No, it's not.
0: Yeah, the other thing that was interesting, you know, we're talking about this inflation stuff and, and you know, I think I fall in exactly the same camp as Carl with the inflation stuff. I think the the deflationary impulse is most likely the head fake. But, you know, you talk about this, this infl- I was sitting as, as you guys were talking about phones and thinking, you know, I know that my iPhone could now send the Apollo mission to the moon, but I just don't want to, I just want to make phone calls with it. I don't want to pay 1200 (laughs) bucks for it. Just give me a phone that can make phone calls on.
1: That has been my objection to hedonics all along, you know? I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit how long I've been like on that topic. I mean, I I even put a chapter in my book about uh, Greenspan in 07 about the CPI and how it was a fraud and you know it was 96 when the Boston Commission did what it did and you know I know we're gonna read stories about that somewhere down the road it's just like I'm tired of waiting yeah
0: yeah well yeah I suspect you're the the market's
1: gonna do then the market's gonna do when it wants to do it but um I was wondering you know I wasn't what was it when we talked to Russell uh Clark about um food inflation Food inflation—that was his big thesis as to what gets everyone's attention, as I recall. So I mean, it's here and it seems like it's happening. We we might need to talk to him again and see what he what he makes of that.
0: I completely agree. Well, look—it's it's it's been another fascinating conversation, mate. Uh, Everyone has much fun or more fun than the last, and uh, we've got a couple more lined up, which we'll get to in the next weeks. But um, for the time being, all that remains is to thank you out there for listening to us, to thank our special guest, Carl Bass, for giving us his time. Uh, And to remind you that uh, if you aren't following me on Twitter and you'd like to do so, you can do that. You'll find me at TTMYGH. You can follow Kyle, if you're not following him already, and I would hardly recommend you do, at JKyleBass.
1: Oh, yeah, and I'm at Fletcat.
0: Still the same. All right, mate, well, I will talk to you soon. Uh, Hope hope the fitness regime keeps improving and you're out hitting balls properly again soon.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm doing my best.